Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, we'll explain what the Venom vulnerability is, what the impact is, and the steps major providers are taking to protect themselves, how you can prevent a cyber intrusion, a great big batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 214 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on May 14th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine. Go check that out at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris. Everybody, thanks for watching. Alan, we have, let's be honest, a huge show today. It's kind of ridiculous. The news, not only have you been, uh, not only did you bank a story that you researched quite a while ago, but the news this week, I mean, like our first story, for example, Venom, has been getting a lot of headlines for like just the last couple of days. It's right, perfect in the news cycle for us to do a good breakdown on it. Tons of stuff in the roundup, lots of questions, lots of follow-up. Apparently, we've ruffled a few feathers, Alan, so we've gotten some feedback this week that we have to read. So it is a huge show today. So do you want to just start by jumping in right into the Venom stuff? Yes. Uh, All right. So uh, first is Venom, which is uh, the latest vulnerability to get a name and a logo and, and a the logo. Full treatment. Yeah. Uh, and it very awkwardly stands for Virtualized Environment Neglected Operations Manipulation. <laughs> they tried a little too hard on that one. Yeah. Because that's not a sentence. No. No. Uh, but it makes sense. Basically, um, it's a flaw in the way that QMU emulates a floppy disk uh, that could allow an attacker to break out of the virtual machine. Mm. And so neglected operation being trying to use a floppy disk uh, and you're manipulating it from inside and that in a virtualized environment just lets you get out and so mm-hmm. on. Um, so... Uh, this vulnerability may allow an attacker to escape from the confines of an effective virtual machine guest and potentially obtain code execution access to the host. Uh, absent mitigations, uh, this VM escape could open access to the host system and all the other VMs running on that host, potentially giving adversaries uh, significantly elevated access to the host local network and adjacent systems. So looking at the diagram Chris is showing there, uh, you start by having access to one of the virtual machines, uh, you know, depending on how you're exploiting this. If it's at Amazon or something, then, you know, if you're, you rent your own virtual machine or hack into somebody else's mm-hmm. and you have root and then you uh, send these commands to the floppy disk, then you break out and get access on the host. Once you're on the host of that virtual machine, you can then, uh, by the nature of being on the host, uh, take over any of the VMs that are also running on that machine. But also, because you're on the network, a lot of times in these setups, if you scroll back up a little bit, uh, basically the hypervisor has a bunch of peers, a bunch mm-hmm. of other hypervisors, yeah. and they trust each other right. so that they can do things like live migrations. Well, if that means may, you might be able to actually hop over from the host to the other host hypervisor, hmm. right? Because the VMs are isolated off on their own network or whatever. But if you're actually on the host, you might be able to skip to the other host. And so once you compromise one of the VM hosts, you might be able to compromise the others. And you might also be able to just get access to other things, like the billing database that's uh, connected to the host, because the host has to send usage data to the billing database uh, to charge you, right, if you're renting VMs by the hour or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
and all those other things. So you could definitely uh, use this to not only break out of the VM, but affect other VMs and maybe even compromise the whole network of the provider and so on. And this affects... Yeah, this is the big thing. Uh, the reason why this is such a big deal is it's not just a bug in one of the virtualization platforms. Uh, the bugs in QMU, in the way it emulates the floppy disk, but that same code is in KVM for mm. uh, Linux, VirtualBox, and most of the different modes for Zen, the hypervisor, as well. So it's actually easier to list the hypervisors that are not affected. Hmm. There's uh, VMware, Hyper-V, Box, and Beehive. But basically anything Linux-y at all that borrows code from QMU uh, has this vulnerability. Uh, and so that's kind of why it's a big deal. And so it's been assigned a, a CVE number, like everything else, 2015-3456. And I suppose, do you know with VirtualBox, does that include the Windows and Mac yes. OS versions uh, so, of VirtualBox? Uh, we're just about to get to that, oh, okay. but yes. Uh, because of the nature of it, it, the code is actually in the hypervisor. It's agnostic. Uh, since Venom vulnerability exists uh, in the hypervisor, uh, you can exploit it on Linux, Windows, Mac, or FreeBSD. Anywhere where you run any of those hypervisors. And QMU runs on almost anything. Mm-hmm. And so KVM is, is like uh, Linux and Solaris. Uh, VirtualBox is Linux, Windows, Mac, and FreeBSD. Uh, Zen is Linux and FreeBSD, uh, etc. <clears throat> Uh, so it needs to be noted that even if a guest doesn't explicitly have a virtual floppy disk configured and attached, right. the issue is still exploitable. Uh, the problem exists in the floppy disk controller, which is still there even if you don't have any actual floppy disk drives set up. Uh, and that means it, uh, hmm. or it's initialized automatically on every x86 and x86-64 guest regardless of the configuration, and it cannot be removed or disabled. Uh, so... Uh, on on the Venom page, they actually identified that as possibly a bug that, you know, it still makes a floppy controller there even if you don't have any floppy drives. Mm-hmm. It probably shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so even if you don't have a floppy drive, you can't uh, make it not have a floppy controller and you can't remove or disable it. Because when I was talking about this vulnerability, when I first heard about it before I read all the details and someone asked me, you know, uh, Amazon says they're not vulnerable I was like, well, I wonder if that's just because they don't bother making a, a floppy disk on the virtual machines. But it couldn't actually be that. So, hmm. Yeah. Maybe they've done something else to <clears throat> disable that. Yeah. Uh, they say the guest operating system communicates with the floppy disk controller by sending commands such as seek, read, write, format, etc., to the floppy disk controller's I/O port, right? Which is actually like a region of, of memory. Uh, mm-hmm. QMU's virtual floppy disk controller uses a fixed size buffer for storing these commands and their associated data parameters. Uh, the, the floppy disk controller keeps track of how much data is expected to be, you know, each command expects this much input, and so it won't let it use more RAM than that. And then after all the expected data uh, for a given command is received, it executes the command and then zeroes out the buffer. Uh, However, this buffer reset is performed immediately on the completion of the processing of all the floppy disk controller commands, except for two special ones. Uh, An attacker can then send these commands and specially crafted parameter data to overflow the buffer, right, because it's only so big and you write more data than that to it, Mm -hmm. uh, and then that will cause it to execute uh, arbitrary code in Mm -hmm. the context of the hypervisor process. Uh, which then lets you break out of the virtual machine and run whatever you want on the host machine. Okay. 
Uh, so the Venom vulnerability has actually existed since 2004 when the virtual floppy disk controller was first added to QMU. So <laughs> from day one. So we're just lucky no one's found this. Well, QMU has existed longer than that, Yeah, I know. But not much. The day one, the feature yeah. was in there. Yeah, since the floppy disk controller emulation was added in 2004, this bug's been there and no one noticed it before now. Uh, so after verifying the vulnerability, uh, CrowdStrike, the company that found it, uh, did responsible disclosure of Venom uh, first to the QMU security contact list so that the QMU guys would know about it. Mm. They also sent it to the Oracle, or sorry, the uh, Zen security list for Zen, Oracle for VirtualBox, and then the operating systems distribution security list on April 30th of 2015 because uh, Zen and KVM are bundled in a lot of operating yeah, systems. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, after a patch was developed, uh, on May 13th, or was uh, developed and then released by May 13th, CrowdStrike publicly disclosed the Venom vulnerability on the 13th, which was yesterday. Uh, since the availability of the patch, CrowdStrike has continued to work with major users of these uh, vulnerable hypersizers to make sure the vulnerability is patched as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. It seems that, I don't know, for responsible disclosure, I think maybe I would have waited a couple more days. You know, if the, if the patch, you know, there are a bunch of places that haven't finished patching yet. Yeah, and it seems like there wasn't a big rush to publish. Honestly. And and I I uh, I wonder if that's why they specifically call out in that statement that they're working with the companies. CrowdStrike is working with these companies to like try to put out there. Look, we're doing res- not only do we do responsible disclosure, but we're working directly with important players to make sure they're okay. Right. I just it seems that I would have given people a little bit more time. Yeah. Considering the scale of this, although at the time uh, they're like, you know, we didn't give out that much information, and where nobody had a working proof of concept for it, uh, except for that's changed already. So, oh, okay, okay, I did not realize that's uh, changed. So, CrowdSource has a, a blog post where it goes on in more detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, while it seems obvious that infrastructure providers could be impacted, there are many less obvious techno- uh, technologies that depend on virtualization. Or CrowdStrike, not CrowdSource. Yes, yeah. yeah, right. Uh, so this is, uh, they're explaining why they did the disclosure right away. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, so this is, uh, well, you know, it makes sense that, you know, people like, you know, Amazon might be affected, DigitalOcean, Linode, all the other places. Uh, but, for example, security appliances that perform virtual uh, detonation of malware often run these untrusted files with administrative privileges, potentially allowing an adversary to use the Venom vulnerability to bypass, crash, or gain execution availability on the devices that are supposed to be protecting you from malware. Hmm. Right? So, you know, you have like a VM that sits there and uh, scans any files that your users on your network are trying to download, like PDFs and, and so on, and tries to see if they do anything bad. Uh, and in that case, uh, you know, this could allow them to break out and disable your device or take it over and make it purposely inject malware into all your users' stuff. And, you know, giving the, the attacker a perfect man-in-the-middle opportunity. You don't so think on. that seems like a kind of extreme edge case, though? A little bit. But uh, I can definitely see how this, you know, this affects more than just uh, cloud services. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an outside-the-box example that I hadn't thought of. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I can't say that was their point. It's like, you know, we use virtualization all over mm-hmm. for all kinds of things. It's true. Uh, and, you know, a lot of appliances now don't actually ship as a physical appliance. They ship as a VM that you run. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a lot of people running security appliances or firewalls and all that stuff as VMs, this is actually a, a really big deal. Uh, so they say uh, CrowdStrike would also like to uh, 
publicly recognized Dan Kaminsky, uh, who's the chief scientist at White Ops, but is also a famous uh, security researcher, uh, who is a renowned security researcher with extensive experience discovering and disclosing major vulnerabilities. Dan provided invaluable advice to us throughout this process on how best to coordinate the release of open source patches across the numerous vendors and users of these technologies. Uh, so then uh, Zen has their uh, advisory, number oh, yeah. 133 for 2015, mm-hmm. uh, or just 133 in general. Uh, and they say code in the QMU, which emulates floppy disk controller, uh, did not correctly bounce check accesses to an array and therefore was vulnerable to a buffer overflow attack. Um, they say all Zen systems running x86 HVM guests without subdomains or without stub domains are vulnerable to this depending on the specific guest configuration. The default configuration is vulnerable. Hmm. Uh, guests using either the traditional QMU-Zen or the upstream Zen device model are vulnerable. Hmm. Uh, guests using the QMU-DM subdomain to run the device model are only vulnerable to takeover of that service domain rather than the whole uh, Zen host. Uh, systems running only x86 PV guests are not vulnerable because they don't use QMU for the para virtualization. Ah. Also, all the ARM systems are not vulnerable because they don't emulate a floppy disk on ARM. <laughs> hmm. Lucky ARM. Yeah. Hmm. So, Alan, you said there was some actual proof of concept code out in the wild? Uh, this coming up. Uh, so then we have a statement from Amazon uh, where Amazon says that their services are not affected. Okay. Say, we are aware of the QMU security issue assigned uh, CVE 2015-3456. Oh, I just realized that's 3456. Anyway, uh, also known as Venom, which impacts uh, various virtualized platforms. This is, uh, there is no risk to AWS, AWS customer data or instances uh, for information on the Zen advisory see here. Okay. Um, so it sounds like they might have already patched that or something. Uh, then DigitalOcean has a statement. Uh, right, they use KVM, right? Yes, because they use KVM. This is uh, earlier today, CVE 2015-3456 came out. Uh, security vulnerability known as Venom. Uh, this bug in KVM slash QMU, which is their virtualization environment, uh, could potentially exploit a VM's virtual floppy drive as described in detail here and here, which is the uh, Red Hat and uh, Ubuntu uh, security pages about it. This is uh, DigitalOcean has conducted a thorough audit of our platform and is taking steps to mitigate the issue. Uh, on hypervisors running the latest version of our cloud, the QMU process is confined by a mandatory access control profile, which would prevent a would-be attacker from accessing the host system or other droplets. Uh, we are rolling out updates across all of our infrastructure to ensure the latest QMU security patches are applied on each server. In addition, we are implementing a number of other security and monitoring features in order to, prevent, uh, to provide early warning of attempts to exploit this or similar vulnerabilities. Uh, in order to complete this process of applying the security patches, a small number of our hypervisors will require a reboot. Mm-hmm. Our team is currently working to schedule this uh, in the least disruptive manner, uh, disruptive manner possible. And they'll keep your update on the progress. And uh, in the comments is uh, where some of the interesting information came out. Mm. Uh, a user asks, why are the VMs even deployed with virtual floppy drives? And uh, the DigitalOcean guys reply saying their images don't have floppy drives enabled by default. But the vulnerability in KVM doesn't actually require a floppy drive to be there right. uh, for it to work. Right. Yeah, that's part and of the then, bug. Yeah. Uh, the Red Hat Advisory goes into more detail. But then, yes, over uh, on the open source security mailing list, mm-hmm. uh, they have um, mm. a sample exploit here, which is uh, literally like 
eight lines of code. Yeah, I see this. I didn't realize this was the example. Yeah, uh, and basically it just writes, uh, what's that, 10 megabytes of data uh, to the <laughs> buffer, and you'll just see this pattern of 0x42 written to your memory, and you'll know that, hey, that could have been something bad. I like this guy. He says, all I have to say about Venom is that I was exploiting obsolete hardware in KMU years before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I have links to both of those as well. Uh, these are CVEs from like 2007 and 2011 uh, about breaking out of uh, KMU and KVM. Uh, so the 2011 one is from uh, DEF CON and Black Hat of 2011, and that's for breaking out of KVM. And the other one is a paper from a Google researcher in 2007 hmm. uh, studying the uh, security exposure of the hosts uh, when you're running virtualization. Hmm. Boy, uh, it's good to, I mean, I, I'm curious to know both, seems like Amazon has done something, the uh, chat room says it's because they're using para-virtualization where they don't have to worry uh, about it. Uh, not and, for everything though. Like, yeah. uh, para-virtualization they use for a lot of the, especially the older Linux instances, but uh, all of the FreeBSD instances are not para-virtualized because FreeBSD doesn't support that. Uh, all the, uh, most of the ones that are using para-virtualization is because they're running on the old Opterons that Amazon had when they started uh, AWS. Jeez, oh, I just found your last link. <laughs> oh, yes. Watch out for the audio on that one. Yeah, I, well, now you tell me. <laughs> well, uh, I actually got this from Angela. So. Oh, jeez, my wife. Uh, yeah, so, but it, it touches on an important thing that you know bothers me is the sort of the hype that surrounds these and the marketing, the labeling, the yeah. branding. So, yeah, there's uh, been you know a backlash against the naming and glamorizing of these vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one researcher to do his protest, he found a vulnerability in Lightspeed, which is a, a small web server thing that's in use by about two percent of the world, mm. uh, or of the web servers in the world. Uh, so that's not big, but. You know, it's and then he made the worst either. website possible for it. Yes. Uh, with a changing background color, its own soundtrack. Uh, something kind of like the Heartbleed logo, but made to look more like an ass. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it talks about uh, this vulnerability, includes example code, and everything you need. This is so horrible. This is the worst thing ever. It is. <laughs> so, But uh, it's actually a real vulnerability. Yeah. That's that's pretty good. That's pretty and good. It, and it has a link to the store where you can buy the T-shirts, and you, it's like here's the official soundtrack, and you know the whole thing. Wow, Alan. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and and then like I said before, though, in some ways it is helpful. It does raise awareness, and it's, it sounds like a pretty important bug to patch. So get people getting people to patch does take some organization, yes. some effort. Uh, but the awkwardness of of the acronym shows how hard they tried to mm-hmm. like they they picked a cool name mm-hmm. and they then they tried to backronym it to an acronym it's like one of those government ones where there's like wow how did you acronym that for that bill or whatever like they have yeah, people it's that definitely a, a backronym right yeah. where you started with yeah. uh the the, the thing you wanted. wanted yeah yeah and exactly then you tried to make words that spelled yes. it out and then you just got as creative as possible yeah. uh, all right Al, any other thoughts on that story 
Uh, nope, that's about it for that one. Okay. All right. Well, then uh, I'll take a moment here and mention uh, IX Systems. These guys have the system you'll need to build out your next infrastructure build. Uh, they, they have systems built with these Intel Xeon processors that are just top-notch. They have white glove service end-to-end. IX Systems is, in my in my estimation, would have been sort of a deal-breaker. If I could have gotten in earlier with IX Systems like years ago when I was still doing client services, this would have been one of my secret weapons. Is like I would have been moving my clients over to IX hardware, and I would that would have been like one of the like one of the feathers in my cap because this is tr- oh man after all of the years of deploying hardware on on IBM systems and, and Dell systems and HP systems and then fighting with them when I'm deploying an open source based solution or even anything that gets near to that and there's a hardware and a software gray area it has been yeah. a nightmare not to mention they don't even have any idea what it is I'm trying to build let alone the technology I need to solve it or <laughs> or their support of the hardware under that technology. IX Systems excels at all of those things. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there to check them out. Alan, did you see they have a... Like, they've won two awards recently for TrueNAS. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so at first I was like, I thought I already read that. Yeah, I was no. like, oh, no, it's they won another more award. awards. It's more awards, yeah. <laughs> yes. They just got the uh, the uh, DCIG award uh, for excellent, the excellent rating for the 2015-2016 midsize enterprise hybrid array. In their bias, because ah, yes, uh, the other ones were just regular arrays, and this one is for uh, the hybrid, where you have some flash and some not. Right, with that when you need that fancy speed, yeah, excellent rating yes. by DCIG. And I well, the the TrueNAS Z20 and Z30 are are beefy machines. Yeah, and where was I just recently? And uh, best in class for the hardware category because that really is the nicest hardware you can get. I was. It, I, Alan, I was at a conference, and these guys were replacing um, a whole set of extended four-based uh, storage arrays with IX Systems uh, TrueNAS storages, and like they, they found IX Systems uh, because they wanted Z- they wanted like the best ZFS storage array possible, but. Like they stayed there after they talked to them. They reviewed all of the features. Like they reviewed other hardware, uh, other hardware manufacturers as well. Right. And IX Systems easily won. And this is, I think, before they have this excellent rating. But right. it well, it also totally matches up. All, all it takes is talking to somebody from IX, ask them a couple of questions mm-hmm. about the hardware, mm-hmm. and you'll be able to tell immediately compared to the, some other place. Mm-hmm. They actually know what the hardware is and how it works. Yep. And you know, the biggest difference is they will ask you questions. Yep. Yeah. Right. Whereas the other people, they don't know what to ask, so they just they just go based on what you tell them and and try to match that to some product matrix they have, where they you know mm-hmm. they've studied for a while to try to know. Right, what so the, I use this script, and they're this class of customer, so I sell them this class of hardware. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, whereas IX is like, hi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you want to do with this again? Tell us about. Your oh, problem. okay. <laughs> yep. That's why so many huge companies out there. IX Systems is super proud of their clients page. Go to ixsystems.com/slash/clients to check it out. The U.S. Army is on there. Adobe Wise, Shutterfly, Trend Micro, Verisign, Footlocker, Jumper, Symantec, the FreeBSD Foundation, Autodesk. I mean, this is just naming a few of them. Yep. University of Utah. Look at all these guys. Columbia University. There's so many. And, of course, uh, Scale Engine as well. Mm-hmm. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Thank you to IX2 for sponsoring the TechSnap mm-hmm. program. You guys rock. They do. Alan, now uh, we have a couple of more stories to dig into. And uh, this next one is sort of, um, well, we've talked a lot about how people can avoid really addressing uh, problems. This one maybe is steps to actually mitigate and perhaps prevent actual problems, like actual steps yes. to take, real world? Yes, these are actual steps you could actually take All to right. protect your network from actual real attackers, not just imaginary ones. That sounds like a nice change of pace. What yes. do we have? So uh, the Australian Signals Directorate, which is kind of the Australian equivalent of the NSA, uh, except for 
without the negative connotations. I mean, like they're the in charge of you know keeping Australia's secrets and finding out the other guy's secrets. Right, uh, that's their slogan. There, reveal their secrets, protect ours. <laughs> uh, so they've released their strategies to mitigate targeted cyber intrusions. Okay. Uh, so basically, it's a list of 35 methods that uh, you could apply to your network to help prevent, mitigate, and detect uh, cyber attacks. And they've ranked them based on how effective they are, um, how hard they're to implement, how much it'll cost, how much the users will hate you for doing it, and all the, the key metrics that it takes. <laughs> uh, and they rank them, and they're like, if looking at every intrusion we've ever investigated, if people just did these top four, 85% of the intrusions would have been stopped. Hmm. So uh, those top four are uh, use an application whitelist. So this is basically only this list of software that's approved for running on our network is allowed to run. Any other program will just be stopped from running. And in that case, all malware just doesn't work. Uh, Although, you know, that one causes a bit of feedback from users because they want to use another application and it doesn't work. Yeah. Although oftentimes uh, they'll complain about it less ne- uh, because they're, um, you know, they're not supposed to be running these other applications, right? Half the time the applications that's stopping the user from using are ones that they're not supposed to be using. Not yeah. necessarily harmful. Yeah, that's but usually the most just cases. Goofing off and so on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that, and then the ob- the other three are pretty obvious, right? Install your application updates, especially Java, Flash, PDF Reader, browser, that kind of stuff. And install your OS updates and install them quickly. Mm. But also, do not use Windows XP. That's actually right on the list. <laughs> it's like, install your OS updates, which means no Windows XP. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, do not give administrator privileges to more people than actually need it. Right. Right. There's no reason for every person to be admin on their desktop. Sure, it makes certain things easier and whatever, but you know, we've, we've Microsoft and so on have done a lot better job of making it not require root to do everything anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but yeah. So if you have application whitelisting, that'll stop viruses from from happening, or you know, from the user being able to run them. And like even if they get the email attachment or whatever, and they open it uh, and they try to run it, it'll be like denied. And uh, if you have your flash. Uh, Java and PDF reader updates, then you're not going to get exploited that way. And if you have your OS updates, you're not going to be exploited that way. Mm-hmm. And with all those in place, you should actually be pretty okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, the basics, right? And then also yeah. just smart behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and so they have the whole list of 35, which we'll go through in a minute. But first, uh, they have a video here called yeah. Catch, Patch, and Match. I like that. You ready? Uh, which is basically those four things. And, and it's actually a fairly well done video. So yes. uh, we'll take a look catch, match, and patch, or whatever they call it. The information age has changed the way you work, the way you play. It touches almost every aspect of daily life, and you're able to take advantage of all that it offers. But there are others who want to take advantage as well of the way you work, the way you access information, and the way you share it. They want to know about you, your information, your organisation... of a rapidly growing challenge to Australia's national security, its economic prosperity and social well-being. The cyber threat has now reached an unprecedented level. What's that? They're pushing it a little bit with this part. but Yeah, yeah, it's flashy. Government and industry are being threatened on a daily basis and the effects 
can be catastrophic. So who's after your information? Alan Jude. There's the hackers who work alone, oh. seeing what they can get away with. Then there are hacktivists. Their activities are usually a form of protest. Criminal syndicates want to steal information. They're looking to make money, serious money. Spies and state-based hackers pose the greatest threat to your information. They are the most sophisticated and capable. They want information about Australia, its policies, its industries, its intellectual property and its defences. And they want to know what you're working on. So how are they getting in? A lot of the time, you're showing hackers in through the front door. When you sacrifice security for speed. When you ignore policy just to get the job done. It can be a USB stick used as a quick workaround. Or the random email opened without thinking. <laughs> you may not be aware of it, but your behaviour can make life easier for intruders. So how do you stop them getting in? The first step is to realise the value of your information and the consequences of it falling into the wrong hands. You can help make your organisation more resilient. That's where we come in. The Australian Signals Directorate. We're the Commonwealth Authority on Cyber Security. Hmm. Here to help you keep your information safe. We've developed strategies to mitigate cyber intrusions. Like all good strategies, the best ones are simple and effective. Your organisation needs to catch, patch and match. Catch, patch and match. Put it into practice. Catch malicious software with a whitelist. This ensures only the software that's been approved can run. Everything else is blocked. Hmm. Patch all your applications with updates. Your operating system too. Ask your IT team. Do it now. Intruders can take advantage of vulnerabilities in software. Match the right people with the right access. Only a few people need administration privileges. These privileges in an intruder's hands can spell disaster. If you catch, patch and match, you could prevent at least 85% of the intrusion techniques hmm. ASD responds to. Hmm. The threat is very real, but there is something we can do. You can be part of the protection. Everyone has a part to play. Catch, patch, match. So what do you think, Alan? It's not a bad slogan. Catch, patch, yeah. and match. ASD.gov.au Well, particularly talking about the fact that part of it is just if users would just not open that email yeah. and, and, and understood that the whitelist is there for a reason, yeah. that would make that big of a difference. But, Alan, if that could ever happen, we wouldn't have had an antivirus industry for the last decade. <laughs> really, right? So I don't well, know if it's possible. Basically, we've learned that uh, antivirus is about trying to enumerate badness, right? Have a list of all the bad things and stop them. Mm -hmm. 
And we've learned that that's not possible. Mm-mm. There's too many bad things. You're always going to miss stuff. So you think it is? It's worth a lot better to have a whitelist. Only the these things are right. Now, in my in my practical experience, the whitelist situation has always been extremely difficult unless a very unless it's a very fixed function workstation or something like mm-hmm. that, or yeah. a very fixed function server. In fact, if anything, whitelists are easier to do on servers. I mean, there you well, yes. there I think you can make a much more compelling argument on the desktop. Yep. But see, this video is talking about the desktop, and on the desktop. Well, you just have really well, have to have again, a good management how, system like, in place. Yeah. Uh, well, they actually get into it a little bit later about uh, some ways to make hmm. that easier. Oh, okay. But in the end, on, on a regular user's desktop, how many applications that I are they installing themselves, right? You know, I've just found in my experience that updates over time to the system and security change things enough that sometimes things just stop working when you have whitelist. Well, yeah, and obviously, yes. Uh, every time there's an update to Microsoft Word, it's hash changes. Uh, and so you have to re-whitelist it, kind of. Uh, and there's a bunch of things related to that. But in general, um, it can definitely make a difference. Uh, so if you look at the table now, uh, you can see that. So application whitelisting uh, is essential, uh, but user resistance will be medium. Mm-hmm. I would actually say it probably be high because of the reasons you're saying. Mm-hmm. But in general, if you really think about a workstation, how many people are really using that much software outside of you know sure. their office, yeah. their browser... And you know a couple other. Really, there's a yeah, like that. There, yeah. That that does take care of a big swath of people. Well, you know, um, third party software and stuff used to be bigger, but now almost everything's a web application, so it's less. True. People have less software they're actually running That's on the computer. That's another good now. point. So I think whitelisting actually has become a little bit yeah. easier. Although part of that might just be in response to some places that are whitelisting, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do say the upfront cost, including staff, equipment, and technical complexity, is very high because hmm. you have to decide what to whitelist, and you know it's going to be quite a process for a while. Every time uh, you block somebody from doing something they need to be able to do, it's going to cause resentment and anger, and so on. Oh, this is and it also has fairly high uh, maintenance costs, right? Because every time there's an update, you're going to have to re-whitelist the application, and you know it's going to be quite a bit of work. Uh, there's a better version of this table on the actual uh, Australian website. If mm. you go to okay. the uh, the link at the top uh, of the story, and then you'll see there's a link to the HTML version of the table. Okay. Uh, so anyway, that's that. And then we've talked about patching applications, which is uh, low user resistance, but high complexity and high maintenance cost. Uh, patching the operating system is medium upfront cost and medium maintenance cost, because they're slightly less frequent, and the operating system is usually designed to be updated. Um, and then restricting the administrative privileges, you will get some resistance from users, and you know there is some technical complexity making sure they can do everything. But in the, end, the maintenance cost of that is low because it's mm. easy to not give people things. Yeah. So then the, some of the other stuff they have is uh, user application configuration hardening. So this is uh, disabling things like internet-based Java code, untrusted Office macros, you know, undesirable browser and PDF viewer features, things like that. You know, disable JavaScript in your PDF viewer. If you're using Adobe or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, so that one you know they have user resistance is medium because you know if you break their Excel doc they're going to be angry at you. But uh, you know, and then medium uh, upfront cost and medium maintenance cost. But then if you look at uh, automated dynamic analysis of email or web content, such as you know running it in a sandbox to detect suspicious behavior, including network traffic, uh, newer modified files, and configuration changes before you let the user play with it. Uh, you know, that's uh, a medium upfront cost, but a low maintenance cost and low user resistance. Then operating system uh, generic exploit mitigation techniques like uh, 
non-execute bit, data execution prevention, WXRX, uh, ASLR, or you know, installing the uh, Microsoft Enhanced Mitigation uh, Experience Toolkit, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. EMET. Mm-hmm. Uh, low user resistance, medium upfront cost, but a low maintenance cost. Then you know, host-based intrusion detection and prevention to help you know notice when something's touching files is not supposed to be, or logging keys, or random processes that shouldn't be there, things like that. Uh, so obviously, some of those are. If you don't have a whitelist, then you need to have host-based IDS to try to detect anything that's not supposed to be there. Uh, but that's a medium upfront cost and a medium uh, upkeep cost. Disabling local administrator accounts. This is a big one for Windows. Uh, you know, you have a big deployment and you have your domain for all your security stuff, but then you have a local administrator account on every machine that's exactly <laughs> identical because yeah. you you uh, image deployed your systems. Well, if that's not disabled, then if somebody gets access to, say, the secretary's machine, then they can uh, extract the same database, brute force the password offline or whatever, and then next time they get unprivileged access to you know uh, an engineer's desktop, they can then use the local administrator to take it over, right? Uh, and then you have, you know, all your security problems. You know, network segmentation and uh, segregation, mm-hmm. keeping your different parts of your network separate, but that's a high upfront cost and a medium upkeep cost. Uh, multi-factor authentication is good, although that's a medium user resistance, high uh, capital cost, and medium upkeep cost. Right. Then they talk about you know software-based application firewalls that block all incoming traffic. That's low for the user, but medium for upkeep. Mm, and then yeah. your software-based firewall blocking all outgoing stuff from untrusted applications. Mm. So instead of a whitelist uh, on the software, you could just say only approved software can use the, can send anything to the internet, and this will stop uh, you know the bad guys from stealing data or whatever. But that'll have your medium user resistance on that one, <clears throat> or 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 more medium yes. high maybe. Yeah. Uh, well, this is the one uh, that kind of gets around. The next one is the one that gets around the um, the whole concept or the problems with the whitelisting, and that's a non-persistent virtualized sandbox trusted operating environment, uh, which is you know hosted outside the internal network on you know like in a DMZ or something, um, where you do high risk activities such as web browsing. So users don't run the web browser on their computer on their workstation anymore. They kind of like RDP to a virtual machine where they do their web browsing. And so if that gets infected, as soon as you close your web browser and restart it, that it's lost everything. It, it erased everything, right? So the virus goes away immediately. And it was never allowed inside your network. right? So disposable VMs for web browsing and stuff like that. If it was integrated enough that you know, the user could just click the browser button on their desktop and it would happen... I think yes. the resistance would be a little less, but sure. in general, this is going to have higher user resistance. Right. But if you can train people to do this, uh, you're going to take away most of the risk from the web browser. You know, you have to have some kind of you know file airlock for downloaded files and a couple things, but uh, you know, it's definitely an approach you can take, especially in a high secure environment where the users are going to be less resistant to stuff like this, where they'll understand it and and put up with it. Uh, but I definitely hmm. think stuff like that could be quite useful. Would you be willing to try it? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't try it. Maybe yeah. on a server. Well, on a server, you should never be running a web browser. No, right? I, I mean, I just mean whitelisting applications in general. But. Well, right. So, so my <laughs> point was instead of whitelisting is you move all the dangerous activities that could introduce external programs 
into a virtual machine that's hosted on the edge of your network, not yes. with no access to your internal stuff. Yeah, I, I follow. Although this can cause problems in the case of things where you know it's the corporate app we're using that's a web app, and I need to upload files from my desktop and download files to my desktop or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or you know, I need to have access to the corporate data that I don't want the bad guys to have access mm-hmm. to to upload it to this website. Mm-hmm. But my browser needs to be isolated so it can't access it, and so there's no way to do that, right? But anyway, uh, you might be able to do that with like VLANs and extra network cards or something to, to run the VMs on each machine so it'll be a little less crazy for the user, but hard to say. Anyway, uh, next is the centralized and time-synchronized logging of successful and failed computer events uh, kept for at least 18 months so that you know, in the event something does go bad, you can yeah. actually backtrack and figure out when it started. Instead of just knowing that your system is compromised now, it's like, well, when did this start? How long yeah. has this been going on? Uh, but that one's you know high setup cost and high upkeep cost. Yeah, but it, come on, that's almost just vital from just a decent logging standpoint. Yeah, that's basic. Yeah, but this is this is like a full audit trail of every f- successful and failed event. Mm, I suppose that does get complicated. Right? Have you ever looked at the Windows event log? Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of yeah, especially when you have event. Windows event logs, you want to correlate to Windows or to syslog events, maybe from like a router mm-hmm. or something like that. It does get very yeah. complicated. Oh well, and then they go further talking about. Uh, centralized and time-synchronized logging of allowed and blocked network events. So it's like everything your firewall blocks being logged. It's going to be a lot of data. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But again, that's low user resistance because it's passive, uh, but high setup mm-hmm. cost and high upkeep cost. Uh, email content filtering, uh, allowing only business-related attachment types, preferably actually doing analysis and convert or sanitize all links and stuff in uh, emails. PDFs and Microsoft Office attachments, uh, although that's listed as high user resistance because if you break the Word doc when it gets emailed, that's going to cause all kinds of fun, right? Uh, high setup cost and medium upkeep cost. Mm. Hmm. Uh, then we got uh, web content filtering of mm-hmm. incoming and outgoing traffic, whitelisting of allowed types of web content and using behavioral analysis, cloud-based reputation rankings, heuristic signatures, etc. It's a medium across the board. Domain name whitelisting, so you can only visit certain websites. High user resistance, high setup costs, and mm, very, medium upkeep very. cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, blocking spoofed emails, using things like uh, center policy framework and, mm. and uh, domain keys mm-hmm. to block more faked emails. That's a no-brainer. Yeah, uh, so that's low, low, low. Uh, workstation and server configuration management uh, based on a hardened standard operating environment with uh, you know unrequired functionality disabled. You know, no auto run, no land manager, stuff like that. Uh, but they also recommend disabling IPv6 because a lot of places don't, um, you know, they don't think about it when they're doing their firewall or whatever. And, and so, and, you know, it's just been whacked on less. So there's greater chance of there actually being a bug there. Hmm. Uh, and then antivirus software using heuristics and automated internet based reputation rankings and so on. Uh, denying direct internet access from workstations. Uh, this one's funny because they say by using an IPv6 capable firewall <laughs> to force all traffic through a split DNS server, an email server, or an authenticated web proxy. Well, there's a good uh, use for IPv6. Yeah, so basically imagine, you, you know that annoying captive portal you get when you use uh, wireless sometimes? Yeah. Imagine having one of those at work where you have to log in with like, your active directory username and password uh, to use the internet. Uh, but it would keep random applications that aren't supposed to have the internet from using it, mm-hmm. although that would also break probably a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, server application security configuration hardening. So, you know, configuring your database, web server, et cetera, to be hardened. 
uh, enforcing a strong password policy, uh, removal, uh, removal and portable media control. That's a big one, right? Mm-hmm. Not letting people bring in USB sticks, disabling USB ports, things like that. Because, uh, you know, you really don't need, uh, you know, people use USB sticks to get around all your security setup. And it also screws up your backups, and there's so many things. It's just like, yeah, no USB sticks allowed. Users love that one. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Uh, how about this one? What do you think of this? Restrict access to server message block in NetBIOS. Uh, seems like that's sort of, I guess, on the workstations. That, one, that might, it depends. That, that could like be sort of, unrealistic. <laughs> I suppose. I, I think a lot of places leave standard file sharing on Windows boxes on the workstations when they don't really need it. Right, although, I don't know, almost every place I've ever used, you use it to share files. Yeah. It's better than using Dropbox to share files, I would say, right? Well, so. yeah, I guess specifically, if you turned it off on the workstations, then they wouldn't be able to communicate with the servers. The files are, yeah. Yeah, so it's probably not a good idea. Now, uh, if they mean, like, if you can do stuff like not allow this machine to ever share files. That's where I was going initially with that. Yeah. But, I mean, if although you I don't it think Windows gives you that level of control. It's either on yeah. or off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because like on a Linux or Unix box, you could just use SMB client and never be have the uh, and never have the server aspect at all. But I guess if you don't need well, it, you, you can't. Sh- normally, depending on the uh, domain policy and so on, I don't think a non-admin user can actually create a share anyway. So you know, you know where it might be a new no-brainer to turn it off is if you have a remote user on a laptop all the time. Maybe then yep. turn it or off. Or anywhere if if the user does need access to a Windows file server, then yeah, turn it off. Uh, they also say, you know, user education against, you know, internet threats, spear phishing, social engineering, you know, avoiding weak passphrases, don't reuse passphrases, don't expose your email address, don't use unapproved USB devices, all that kind of stuff. Also, work uh, workstation inspection of Microsoft Office files. So having something like the Microsoft Office file validation or protective view features to make sure that, you know, it's not a corrupt uh, Word file. You know, signature-based antivirus software. Uh, this one's interesting. TLS encryption between your email clients and your server. Uh, this prevents somebody who's already into your network from sniffing and getting email addresses, passwords, yeah. and the content of the emails. Mm-hmm. I don't know why anybody isn't TLS encrypting all their e- communication between their clients and their emails. You know, even if your mail server ends up sending the mail out over the internet unencrypted because the other side isn't able to receive encrypted, although that's getting more rare. Uh, Everything from the client to the server should definitely always be encrypted. Mm-hmm. Uh, blocking attempts to access websites by their IP address. Uh, have your, your web proxy just only allow requests to actual domain names. A lot of malware uses IP addresses because they don't end up in the same kind of blacklist and so on. And there's less uh, ways to trace it back to who it belongs to and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, there aren't very many cases where you normally access an IP address directly, right? And so don't allow that. And then network-based intrusion detection, uh, gateway blacklisting to block no malicious domains and IP addresses. Yeah. And uh, capture network traffic to and from internal critical asset workstations and servers. So basically logging every single packet that goes back and forth, uh, like a full like Wireshark-type capture, onto this file server that has all your sensitive data. Hmm. You know, that's, that's pretty intense. Uh, yeah. I've well, had, if, if you have, if you're like an aerospace company and yeah, you really, yeah. then it makes sense. If, in, in less critical situations, I've had some success just doing something like NTOP where I get a really good uh, picture yeah. of like really top talkers and, and protocols and who's talking to what and where they're going out on the web. And if you have like a switch with a mirrored port and you throw that at a NetTop box, 
uh, you'll get quite a bit of information if you don't need all of the actual data. Yep. Uh, so what the ADS says here, or ASD says here is once organizations have implemented the top four mitigation strategies, uh, although like we were talking about, the app whitelisting is not quite as easy as they make it sound. Um, uh, first on the computers of users who are most likely to be targeted by cyber intrusions, you know, the ones that are going to fall for phishing attacks and yeah, so on, yeah. and then on all the computers and servers, then the additional mitigation strategies can be selected to address security gaps until an acceptable level of residual risk is reached. So they're not recommending everybody do all 35 of these. Okay. It's more like you want the top four, and then you can pick and choose the ones that will have the biggest gain for the least cost for you and so on. Right. That, that, that makes sense. That's a good way to take all of that. But yeah. So uh, of these, the biggest problem is obviously the application whitelisting and a couple of the other ones <clears throat> are definitely going to raise the ire of your average end user. And uh, so, you know, you won't be able to just blanket do all these, but... <laughs> I want to, Alan. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then uh, Secure List from Kaspersky has uh, a write-up on this, and they actually uh, broke the 35 different mitigation methods down into uh, four categories. Oh, yeah. There's the administrative ones, which is, you know, training, physical security, separating things, so on. Networking, which are measures to uh, ensure... Or, they're easier to implement via, you know, networking and hardware and so on. You know, physical firewalls, proxies, caches, things like that. Uh, then the system administration, which is, you know, stuff where the OS actually contains everything you need to implement it. You don't need any extra software. It's like it's already features built into Windows and so on. And then specialized security solutions, which is, you know, specialized software you're going to have to go out and buy or get or whatever. And then they broke it down into four parts in their uh, security encyclopedia, although these parts are uh, scattered with uh, their products and stuff. They actually break down, you know, hmm. how you would use all their different products to solve most of the things on the list of 35 things. Hmm. But they also have a lot of good diagrams explaining how the, the theory actually works, right? So part one is how to mitigate advanced persistent threats, the applied theory. Then they have uh, top four mitigation strategies that address 30, 85% of threats. And then strategies outside the top four for real bulletproof defense. And then finally, forewarned is forearmed, the detection strategy against advanced persistent threats. And they have lots of diagrams and tables and and provide a lot of good information. They've really, I mean, they have done a ton of work here. Yep. And then uh, they also referenced the Gartner study, uh, Best Practices for Mitigating Advanced Persistent Threats, uh, which you can read as well. That is a lot of resources, Alan. Holy smokes. Yeah. Oh, that's a ton of stuff. Well, you know, it's a complex subject. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, there, are, there are entire industries based on this stuff, so it's not going to be a couple of lines. Yeah. All right, sir. Any other thoughts on that? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's about it. Well, then I will mention our friends over at DigitalOcean. Now, go over there and build yourself a server, won't you? Use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit while you do it, and then spin yourself up a droplet. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to get your own cloud server running. And I love this option. It's like my off-site infrastructure now. When I need a Linux rig up in the cloud, I go to DigitalOcean, and I spin it up in 55 seconds. And pricing plans, they start at only $5 a month. 512 megabytes of RAM a 20-gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. A terabyte of transfer for $5 a month. That's just... I love it because, first of all, I have an own cloud rig that doesn't come anywhere near touching that. So I, from time to time, like, if I need to torrent a distro, like when we were downloading a couple of distros, I'll just do it there. I have rtorrent installed. It's really straightforward, and it just 
super quick, and then I just pull down the ISO uh, right down into my own cloud uh, sync folder. So on my computer, I just wake up the next morning, and the ISO is sitting in my own cloud folder, since the own cloud folder is also on my DigitalOcean droplet. And I love that, because I'm paying the $5 for that, and it's such a nice locked-in fixed cost. And the other great thing about it is I can choose from a lot of different locations. So I've got some droplets that I use to distribute files for our unfilter show. That's great. So I've got a, I've got a droplet on the West Coast and on the East Coast, so they have, uh, and you can pick from a lot of locations, New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany, London. They have Tier 1 data centers in all of those locations. Their new one in Germany is super, super fast, 40 gigabit each, connections mm-hmm. to each hypervisor. They're on that exchange over there, so all of Germany's neighbors have great connectivity. And then it all comes together with DigitalOcean's amazing, great user experience. Their interface is so simple, and the control panel is amazing. It's Gosh, it's gorgeous. It really is. A, it's a piece of work because I have worked on these kinds. You know, setting up virtual machines, you guys have all done this. There's not really a great UI there, any UI out there except for DigitalOcean's because it's very fast and you have full DNS management. You can do snapshots. You can destroy your droplets. You can template your droplets. Uh, this is nice if you just want to go in there. Like I have, for example, one droplet's a Minecraft server and I take a snapshot before we do a Minecraft update. And they have one-click application installs for Ruby on Rails, Docker, the LAMP stack, uh, all of that stuff. Of course, they've got CoreOS and FreeBSD and CentOS and Ubuntu to choose from and others. It's really nice. And when you use that promo code SNAPOcean, you get the $10 credit. You can go deploy yourself a computer up in the cloud. It's like a real, a real computer up in the cloud that you get to control. How about that? Mm-hmm. Like, like, it's amazing. It really is incredible. I am really blown away by it still. I, I deploy droplets all the time, and I still get a chill. It's like a few things I don't think I'm ever going to get over. Running Steam under Linux still blows me away. <laughs> Watching Netflix under Linux completely blows me away every single time I do it. And spinning up a droplet, I'm like, that is... That's an Ubuntu computer up in the cloud that's crazy fast that I can just do stuff with. And why did I never do this before? And the, and the, the pricing at $5 a month is so nuts. And if you use the promo code SNAPOcean, then you get the $10 credit. You can try it out two months for free. I mean, it, it really does blow my mind when you just break it all down. And maybe I've just been around too long. I just can't. I, this, this makes it feel like 2015. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Snap Ocean. Okay, so uh, Alan, can you uh, tell me what the heck? I'm not even familiar with uh, what is it, Mumble Hard or Mumble Slip or Mumble Hard? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. W- what's Mumble Hard, Alan? What is this? Uh, so basically, it's a, a spam botnet that's been running since at least 2009 and basically stayed under the radar until now. Oh, and it's been uncovered. Tell me all about it, yes. sir. Uh, so researchers at ESET were looking into it, and they say uh, several thousand computers running Linux and FreeBSD operating systems have been infected over the past uh, seven months with uh, sophisticated malware that surreptitiously makes them part of a renegade network blasting the Internet with spam. <laughs> Lovely. Sounds uh, like a moneymaker. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting is just some of the, the sophistication and the the ways they did specific things. Okay. So the virus is uh, actually written in Perl, but then it's encrypted and packed into an ELF binary, so it looks like an executable. Cute. Yeah. Uh, and they say during the seven-month period where ESET was doing the monitoring, uh, they saw 8,867 different IP addresses connect to the command and control server they set up. Uh, so the mobile hard malware is the brainchild of an experienced and highly skilled programmer uh, it includes a backdoor and a spam daemon, uh, which is a behind-the-scenes process that sends the large uh, batches of junk mail. Hmm. So there are two main components, and they're written in Perl, but then they're obfuscated inside a custom packer program that's actually written in assembly, which is a, a low-level programming language that is you know, native code. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Some of the uh, Perl scripts contain uh, a separate executable with the same assembly-based packer that uh, arranged in a fashion of a you know Russian nesting doll. <laughs> so there's yep. so there's like this executable that unpacks a Perl script and runs it, which then that yeah. Perl script actually contains an executable yeah. that then unpacks and runs another <laughs> Perl script. Jeez. Uh, so the result is a very stealthy infection that causes production servers to send spam and may serve other nefarious purposes. They say, uh, malware targeting uh, Linux and BSD servers is becoming more and more complex. Uh, the fact that the authors used a custom packer written in assembly to hide their Perl source code is somewhat sophisticated. However, it is definitely not as complex as the Windigo operation that we talked about last year. Uh, they say, uh, nonetheless, it is worrying that the MumbleHard operators were active for so many years without any disruption. Hmm. Right? No one's even knew they were doing this for years. Yeah. Uh, the way ESET found out about it was actually just uh, somebody, a sysadmin whose server uh, got blacklisted for sending spam. And he was like, what the hell? And he dug in and found some files and sent them to ESET and they analyzed them. Uh, the way the malware is architected, it has a list of command and control servers that are hard-coded in it. I think the list is about 10. Uh, that, and then it pulls all 10 of them and uh, accepts commands from any of them. Uh, so that means it can actually be get, being controlled by multiple servers at the same time, which is different. Normally, they would you know go down a list, and as soon as they got one of them answered properly, it would stop. This one actually does all of them. Uh, but the list also includes some legitimate sites, so that uh, kind of designed to throw the researchers off. Some of the sites were never recommended control servers, and mm-hmm. never would be. Mm. You know, like one was just like advertising.com or something like mm. that. So there's a bunch of uh, false ones thrown in there to to complicate things. So that the researchers could never tell if any one URL was a real command and control server or not. Because their command and control servers, unlike a lot of other ones, were, never, were not up all the time. They would just turn them on for a short window. You know, uh, the, all the bots would connect, get instructions to send up some spam, and then they would close the server down again. And so uh, the researchers could never tell which ones were real at first. Right. It's pretty clever. Uh, a, a version of the mobile hard spam component was uploaded to Virus Total, which is an online uh, service where you upload uh, samples of malware and so on, and they keep an archive of it and hashes. And it's basically you feed it to them, and then all the virus companies get a copy and can start building matches for it and signatures for it and so on. Anyway, uh, the online malware checking service back in 2009, which is an indication that the uh, spammer pro- program has existed for at least five years. Mm. Uh, the researchers were able to monitor the botnet by registering one of the domain names that the MumbleHard infected machines would query every 15 minutes. So when they built that list of domain names, uh, it seems this has been running for a long time without being updated. Yeah. So one of those domains expired. They, it it might have been belonged to the attackers or it might have been one of the fake ones they threw in there. But one of those domains expired, so ESET was able to buy it and void it at their server. Ah, Clever. And after they had reverse engineered the protocol of how they talk, yeah. they could send commands to the bots. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, at one point, uh, they got one of the domains and then say, the communications with the command and control server are also cleverly hidden to look like the PHP session cookie and uh, the fake uh, user agent string for the browser. Uh, so if you look at the actual researcher PDF, you can see it looks like a regular HTTP request for a file. Uh, but what's actually there's actually the command and stuff is hidden in the the PHP session cookie, and in the um, the user agent string. Hmm. And then when the when the browser comes back to post the results, so the browser calls up and gets a bunch of commands of like spam to send or commands to run, and then it um, posts the results back to say, hey, I finished that work. 
give me more work or whatever, right? Well, the way it does that was actually, um, so in the version string, it looks like uh, Firefox version 7.0.1 on Windows 7, which is Windows 6.1 because Microsoft. Um, so because of that, um, A, that kind of points out how old it is because right. the Firefox version they chose was Firefox 7, which yeah. existed for like two weeks, was yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. They, they, I just remember it was like I had Firefox four for a long t- or I had three point six for a long time, and then it was four five six seven twelve. <laughs> Off to the races. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, now I'm at like thirty eight. Yeah, but anyway, um, so part of the Firefox version number is Gecko slash and then a date stamp, right? Mm-hmm. Like twenty eleven oh one for the version of Gecko, which is the rendering engine that actually draws the website, kind of like WebKit for Safari and Chrome and so on. Um, well. The virus, when it does a post, what it does is instead of sending that date stamp, it sends a command ID number, like 24, dot, then the HTTP status code, 200 or 400, 404, 500, whatever, dot, and then the number of bytes it actually downloaded uh, when it downloaded a, a file. And so just hidden in that, like something you would look at and not even notice that that's not how hmm. Firefox would do it. Yeah. And that's where it's actually hiding the reply. Clever. Yeah. So this is stuff like even in a, if you're like, if you were actually running Wireshark on your network you and watching all the traffic going back and forth, you wouldn't notice that that didn't no. look right. You just probably roll your eyes at it and go, yeah. Well, but like you would just, oh, that's just Firefox hitting a website or whatever. Yeah. Whereas, um, you know, most of the other ones, you know, it's very obvious they use like the, the URL and the parameters and stuff just to, to indicate what they're doing. This one, you know, it was all packed into like single byte. Uh, for the command and a single byte for this and a fixed length and they're even doing like alright so this value is how long the next string is and then this is this string and then, then there'll be another thing instead of like a you know a normally terminated string they're actually doing this is the length of that string so they could combine this bunch of stuff in a row and, and it would make it harder to decipher uh, but yeah this is the, these researchers still aren't certain how MobileHeart actually gets installed on the servers there aren't that many hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a, based on their analysis of the infected servers, they suspect that the malware may take hold by exploiting vulnerabilities in Joomla and WordPress. <laughs> but the other one they saw is um, the, there's a company that seems to be related to this virus uh, called Yellsoft, hmm. which makes uh, spamming software called DirectMailer. Okay. Uh, and it looks like uh, if you go to certain Russian websites and get a pirated version of DirectMailer, yeah. Your machine gets infected and starts sending mail. So the company that sells spamming software, and if you pirate their software, they use your machine to send their customer spam. So it's possible that it's, so it's possible that people that are stealing this are getting themselves infected. Yes, if you're stealing spamming software because you're a spammer, uh, you might actually be not spending sending just your spam, but also. Their spam. That is the perfect people to infect because they've probably taken all the precautions necessary to be able to spam. Yeah, they have. They have bulletproof IP addresses. They they not going to notice that they're getting complaints about the spam because they're spamming on purpose. And yeah, that's uh, but kind of are, genius. There are people that aren't spamming on purpose that are getting this as well. So it looks like there's you know a couple of different ways. Wow, damn. But at the same crazy. time, they seem to not go after very many people at once, so as not to get discovered until now, right? But all the details are in the ESET uh, PDF, and they have a very good detail, and it's it's actually quite sophisticated, and it's uh, 
interesting to see all the detail that they found. That would probably explain why they didn't get caught for so long if they're targeting people that were taking all those precautions. And then yep. you're hiding the commands in the user string, which just look pretty normal to just about anybody. That's kind of genius. Yeah, and the, you know, they're hiding the Perl stuff, uh, you know, and it's like multiple layers and stuff. And I've seen some pretty good uh, exploits written in Perl as well. Uh, you know, ones that set their uh, the string. So when you look at them in like top or PS or whatever, they look like your web server. And they're already running as they're stuck running as your web server user too. So uh, the biggest mistake they usually make is is they make it look like a Linux one, and so that stands out like a sore thumb on a BSD station because <laughs> you know sure. my my the version the the PS strings look different on uh, mm-hmm. that one. Yeah. What? Yeah. All right, Alan, let me tell you about Ting. Ting is mobile that makes sense. Ting is my mobile service provider. The whole crew here at Jupiter Broadcasting uses uh, Ting these days because it's so, so economical for a small business. It's $6 for the line, and then you just pay for your usage. There's no contract. You don't prepay for a whole bunch of minutes or prepay for a whole bunch of data or text. It's just your usage. Well, if you're even just a little savvy, you can save a ton of money. Go to techsnap.ting.com. That'll take $25 off your first Ting device. If you have a Ting-compatible device, and there's a lot of them now because they have a big GSM network and CDMA network. So if you have a compatible device, they'll give you a $25 service credit. That is likely to pay for your entire first month. It actually paid for mine and some change. Now I've got three devices on my Ting plan, and I'm just $6 a month for each line. Extremely economical. That's why the other crew members are able to grab a Ting line and because it's just $6 for them and then their usage, and it's very, very straightforward. And the other great thing about Ting is they have no-hold customer service. You can call them at one eight five five ting ftw anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m., that's East Coast time, and a real human being answers the phone. You can also just turn on things on your phone like Hotspot or Tethering. They don't care. That's just data usage. It's not a big deal to Ting. You can go over and check out some of the devices they have, too. You can get a $9 SIM card. That's a great way to get started if you already have a device. They have the Kyocero Duro XT for $47 when you go to techsnap.ting.com, or the Moto G, $91. I love this this Novotel MiFi. Mm -hmm. $6 data in your pocket. $6 $6 a month. You owe you all these you own outright. These are these yeah. are unlocked, they're yours. You buy this Novatel My 5580, $121 and then it's just $6 a month for data for tri-band LTE. <laughs> and they got of course they got the iPhone 4, 5 and 6. They have the HTC Desire, which is a great phone. The Netgear Zing, which has that full color OLED screen and uh, gives you all of the heads up information like your signal information, $139. No contract, no other termination on any of this stuff. The Galaxy Tab 4 is now over there. Uh, the iPhone 5, the OnePlus, you can get over on Ting now. Uh, the Moto X2, yeah. Or maybe maybe you don't want to buy a phone. Maybe you want to win a phone. Well, Ting is going to give away a Galaxy Note 4 next week. They're doing an unboxing on their YouTube channel, so you have to go subscribe to Ting on YouTube. You can find them at youtube.com slash ting. Leave a comment on the Note 4 unboxing video. Not the blog post on their site, but their Note 4 unboxing video. Uh, Talk about the size of the screen, whatever you'd prefer and why. You have to be a resident of the U.S., by the way. And then they're going to select a winner randomly, 2 p.m. Friday, May 22nd. And that winner will get a Galaxy 4 from Ting. Now, the Galaxy 4 is a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous device with an incredible camera. So... uh, Go watch the Ting unboxing video and then leave a comment over on their video on their YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Ting, and then get yourself a free note, and then when you get it, tell them you heard about it on TechSnap, so that way we get credit for it. <laughs>
Or if you want to just go get yourself a device right now, if you have a Ting-compatible device, you can get started by just going to techsnap.ting.com. Again, that's techsnap.ting.com to get our discount and to support the TechSnap program. Finally, a mobile company that's taken it to the duopoly and trying to make the market a little bit different. TechSnap.ting.com. Alan, I gather that this week's episode of BSD Now had some very interesting memory discussion. Am I correct? Yes, uh, we talked about uh, WXRX, uh, which is uh, basically a chunk of memory. You're either allowed to write to it because it contains data, or you're allowed to execute it because it contains code. And if it's one, you can't do the other. And this basically prevents the type of uh, attacks we were talking about with QMU, where you could overflow that data buffer and then execute it, and it would cause a problem. Right. Great timing on that episode. Alan, that worked out really well. It's episode 89 of the BSD Now program, and it just came out a couple of hours before we went on the air. If you want a little more Alan Jude after this show, this is a great time to get started, about the halfway mark for the TechSnap program, so go download the HD version of BSD Now. And then by the time we finish the rest of the TechSnap show, guess what? You'll have a brand new episode of BSD Now. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Before we get to the email, I actually have a little public service announcement, community-related. If you are on the East Coast, and it may be even better if you're in New York, next week is the Microsoft Build Conference out there, uh, and uh, Mr. Dominic from Coda Radio is going to do a meetup on Monday, May 18th at 9 a.m. If you go to meetup.com slash Broadcasting, there's a few days left to still sign up. You can find it there. It's the MS Build New York uh, meetup. I thought I'd give it a plug. You might not be necessarily wanting to go to build, but maybe you want to meet up with some of the crew that's going. And uh, there may even be some cool stuff to see. And uh, Michael Dominic will be hosting it. You can find more at meetup.com slash Broadcasting. We'll be doing future meetups as well. So it's a good opportunity to sign up there because we'll have more in the future. And maybe even when Alan travels from time to time, he might. Uh, yes, uh, we'll definitely put one for BSD can, right? There you go. And Mr. M writes in with our first email. And as you would expect... It's a ZFS email. He says, first, a pre-question. When I make a snapshot with the snapshot of files, uh, can't be modified anymore. Well, the blocks of the files can't be modified anymore. If the file is changed, new blocks or changes are written to the new location. Is that correct? Yes, although that applies even if you don't have snapshots. So the way ZFS works is every time you write data, it writes it down. And if you overwrite data, it writes the new, the change version to a different spot. And then, uh, then after it's done that, if there's no snapshot, then it will delete the old copy, and that'll become free space ah. that it can write a different block to later. Okay. But if there is a snapshot, then it'll keep the old copy. So no matter what, ZFS never overwrites a file in place. It always writes it to a different spot. So if the power goes out halfway through writing the file, you don't end up with an unusable version of the file. That's the whole awesomeness of ZFS. So yes, uh, when, you have, when you update a snapshot of file, you have the old version and the new version because you have... Every, a, a good copy of every one of the blocks, both uh, whether it was changed or not. Okay. Now, Mr. M writes in with the rest of a question. It's actually kind of an interesting question. He says, uh, when I do a ZFS send, who is responsible for that data migration? Is it the kernel? It's like, so maybe in FreeBSD, is the FreeBSD kernel or would it be the Linux kernel? Is it the Z file system itself? Does it also check the written data when I do a ZFS send to a different data set on the same pool? To an extached, or say to an attached external USB drive or another system over the network? 
Right. So when you do ZFS send, uh, ZFS is doing the work, although part of that is from the, the kernel of whatever operating system you're using. Um, so it generates a send stream and it sends it to the standard output, which you either send to a file or a pipe to SSH to ZFS receive or whatever. So the verification of that data is done on the ZFS receive side, so wherever you write it. So if you do ZFS send and send it to a USB stick, there's no real checking done. Mm. Uh, but when you do ZFS receive to read the data from that USB stick or from the pipe, ZFS receive does the checksumming. In versions of ZFS up to about what you can get now, uh, there's one big checksum done at the very end. In newer versions uh, that are coming out, uh, as part of the speed improvement, it checksums each chunk and will reject it, uh, will basically break sooner if there is a problem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is actually part of the resume feature. So that way, uh, it will break when there's a single bad packet or something, and then it will let you resume from that point and, and solve the problem. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah. um, so then the, so the answer to his second part of his question is, is, is ZFS receive. So, so if you write yeah. to a USB stick, there's a way you can then use ZFS receive to just verify the data was written correctly? Well, you would uh, you'd use quite. ZFS receive to import it. So oh, okay. Uh, and at that point, that's when it would get checked. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, well, there is a command, uh, ZFS stream dump or something like that, that mm-hmm. you can use to analyze the stream. Mm-hmm. So you could probably use that to just read it and, you know, watch the output for an error kind of thing instead mm-hmm. of actually having to import it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think uh, ZFS stream dump might be the that tool you're looking for to verify it if you're just... Well, it depends what you're doing, right? If you're backing up to a USB stick, if, you, if the USB stick is running ZFS, so you're just going to ZFS send from my hard drive and pipe ZFS receive to my USB stick, then the ZFS receive will, will make sure there's nothing wrong. Uh, if you're just writing the raw send stream to the, to the device for some reason, not many people do that, but you can, uh, then ZFS stream dump uh, will dump out, will read the stream and be able to verify it for you. Hmm. But most times you would run ZFS receive anyway, and so it'll be uh, fine. Very good. All right, Jason writes in, and we get this email every now and then, and I'm always open to it. Here we go. Right. I know. Um, no, I know. Okay. I know. All I'll right. explain. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Here we go. <laughs> so Jason writes in and says, what really is DevOps? He says, so I've been noticing that uh, either one of you or both of you do not understand what DevOps is. It's not a developer also doing ops work. It's not an operations guy doing development. It's... It is not a title to be given to a person or a group. As much as I usually hate to take quotes from Wikipedia, it's actually a pretty good one here. DevOps is a software development method that emphasizes communication, collaboration, integration, automation, and measurement of cooperation between software developers and other IT professionals. Yes, and when we talked about what DevOps is, we used that same Wikipedia explanation and be like, yes, that version of DevOps is good. But it's not me or you that doesn't know what DevOps is. It's the people who call themselves DevOps and are just an ops person doing development or a dev person doing ops. Yeah, that is actually... Anybody who calls themselves DevOps is the one that's doing it wrong. Yeah. And since there's more of those, yeah. more people claiming to be DevOps, then there are people actually practicing right. the art like, of DevOps. Uh, uh, <laughs> we, got a little, we got a little heat last week because uh, we sort of downplayed the value of some of the security orchestration software packages out there. Like we have a viewer that has written the show before. 
And uh, my point of that was not so much that the tools themselves don't work because the tools would have to work in order to sell, right? It's that people – the people that use them sort of use the tools to offset the blame a little bit. It's, it's how the tool can be used if it's not used properly. It's the same thing in the regards of the title of DevOps. Like it can be used to be an, an overburdened sysadmin or an overburdened developer who has been straddled with doing sysadmin work. I can say that because I've been in that position. Right. So basically – if your job title says DevOps, then it means your company isn't doing DevOps right. Because if you're doing DevOps as in the software development model, you will either be the, you know, the developer or the ops person or something else. But if your job title says DevOps in it, then it's you doing more than one job, right? Uh, there's, he suggests, and it's not necessarily a bad idea, maybe I should attend the Seattle DevOps meetup where they have 922 automated automators of things. Uh, they have a monthly meetup, and uh, I don't know. I could go to one well, of those. It says you know, the method acknowledges the interdependence of the software development, the quality assurance, and the IT operations to work together. Uh, and you, know, you see it's, it's not a role so much as a mindset, which is true, except people use the term. It's like you know, the word hacker is not supposed to be a bad thing. But calling everybody a cracker when they're not necessarily cracking things is, is wrong too, right? The problem yeah. with English is that words can have more than one meaning. Yeah, like cloud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at this, Alan. I, mean, I don't know what my... Uh, the 26th. This Tuesday, the 26th, at 6.30 p.m., they're going to have a mini unconference. Bring a topic you're interested in talking about or learning about. We'll gather topics and find volunteer moderators and vote. The top three topics will break out and discuss until we're done, and our hosts need to kick us out. This is a neat, this is a neat meetup group, and it, it'll be linked That's, in his email. Uh, how we did some interested. of the stuff at um, MeetBSD as an unconference, and I think we'll have that at VBSDCon, which is coming up in September. Yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah. Um, so yes, DevOps is a good software development model, and you know having the different departments work together is good. Uh, but the problem is that that's not what's actually happening in most places that claim to do DevOps, and that's where the problem stems from. Uh, all right. So, uh, are any other? Are you good? Are you good? No. Uh, yeah. You know the, his whole talk about you know places. Uh, if you're doing agile development, it can take a very long time for uh, code you write to actually get into production. Whereas if you're doing DevOps, you know you could be deploying new code five times a day. It's like that seems like you're overstepping a little bit. But you know, uh, yes, and DevOps is good. It's just what most people call DevOps isn't the Wikipedia definition of DevOps, and that's where the problem lies. Let's see if we can settle poor David's. Issue here. He says uh, he's got a major freenas question for us. I think he's a little scared. I ran a business with my business partner. One of his jobs is also taking care of IT. Now we no longer work together and we split our assets and went our ways. One of our assets that stayed with me is also the Freenas server. Everything works okay, but it came to my knowledge that he really didn't know much about anything when it came to Freenas or IT in general. When he was trying to set up Freenas, he didn't know what he was doing more or less. He's just clicking all the buttons until we could use the Freenas. I would like to learn where I can test and check to see what is open on my Freenas. Firstly, what is accessible through the internet, FTP, Samba, SSH, and secondly, what is open and accessible through the LAN? If my customer or a friend connects to my network, what or how will he be able to access my FreeNAS? If he has malware on his computer and it tries to connect to my FreeNAS, what to check inside FreeNAS and how to test from another computer or how to even get into the FreeNAS? Thanks for all the great shows and the advice, David. Right. So the FreeNAS has a web interface you can go into, and in there, I think it's under services, you can enable FTP, Samba, SSH, and turn them on and off. Uh, now, the FreeNAS is designed to be on your LAN, 
And uh, as long as it's on your land and not directly connected to the internet, nothing on it will be accessible from the internet unless you've made rules on your router to allow it to be. So it's really up to your router slash firewall to stop anything from the internet from getting your free NAS. But your firewall will do that by default, right? Just because of the way NAT works, unless you specifically forward a port, then it's not going to allow anything from the internet to get into your free NAS. However, if it's a friend or a customer connecting to your network, mm. they might be able to. And then uh, you know that's when it comes down to locking things down. Now, FTP and SSH and so on on a free NAS, obviously, you're going to need a username and password, so they're less likely to be able to do something than I'm supposed to. The Samba, it'll depend how you have it set up, but most times that also requires a username and password, although you could make certain files accessible anonymously. Uh, but that's really down to your settings. What do you think, uh, Alan, about him maybe? Because so some of this – so the I mean, free the free NAS web UI is actually pretty straightforward. Like, So if he knows to ask about Samba – then he's probably savvy enough to use the web UI to go see the Samba service and see what the settings are. But what about like something like a YouTube tutorial or something like that, just to how you set I up think Samba? There, uh, there are a bunch of uh, FreeNAS tutorials, and there's also their uh, guide, which is, I think they actually have it printed as a book even. Could always uh, also back up the config and then just try resetting up Samba again. Yeah, you, you can do that if you want, uh, or even just resetting up the whole FreeNAS Uh one thing is that I imagine that FreeNAS is out of date and probably needs some updates. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, it's really pretty straightforward. And if it's a FreeNAS Mini, then they've probably isolated the operating system from the data anyways, and you can just reload the operating system, reconnect to the data. Well, yeah, this is the best setup on those when you know using a USB stick or whatever. Just take that USB stick, stick it in a drawer, get a new one, yeah. do a new version of FreeNAS, yeah. import your pool, set up things exactly it's, how you want you, them. You'd be surprised how easy it is. But yeah, in general, uh, you shouldn't have to worry too much. The free NAS has good same defaults. Mm-hmm. But yeah, go into the web UI, turn off any services you don't need, like FTP, because uh, FTP is not encrypted and you probably don't want to use it anyway, uh, and set it up how you want. Yeah. Uh, and in general, nothing on the free NAS will be accessible from the internet unless you've specifically already punched holes in your firewall for it on purpose. Yep, take a look at that firewall setup. All right, Mike writes in with some advice for an emailer last week. This is great. Uh, he says, uh, my ears perked up when I heard you read the question from a guy with a coffee shop. I used to run admin, manage, etc., an internet cafe in Williamsburg called Internet Garage. We, uh, we have used many different types of hardware for running Wi-Fi and wired internet. We've also tried many different types of captive portals, including Chili Spot, Wi-Fi Dog, Kova, and our favorite, the one built into PFSense. We got as far as using Radius combined with Drupal and Ubercart website for purchasing internet. It was pretty great. The basic premise of doing this is your captive portal should have two or three interfaces, one for traffic upstream, one for the restricted network, and a possible third for an authentication, authorization, and accounting page. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, For those of you that are interested, you should read the GNU published book, Free Radius. It's short and everything you will need. Thanks, guys. As always. so the yeah, your capture portal will uh, have one that goes up to the internet, one that goes uh, to the internal network of the machines that aren't allowed to go uh, to the internet except through the capture portal, and then a third one that can go to your Radius server where you're going to store usernames, passwords, and such. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And he says he liked PFSense the most, so uh, check yep. that out. That's a, another hearty recommendation. Boom. Now I'm feeling good. We got a ZFS question and a FreeNAS question and a PFSense question, and they're all different than we've ever had before. It blows my mind, and that right there is great TechSnap feedback. If you'd like to get your questions into the show, it doesn't have to be those topics. Those are always encouraged, but anything else as well, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and then just choose TechSnap from the drop-down or go to techsnap.reddit.com 
or if you're super old school, I don't know why this feels old school, but let's just face it, it does. Email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And then just send your question, and we love that kind of stuff. Really good stuff this week. Thanks, you guys. And uh, we always would like to have more. We'd like to feature it every single episode. But with the email all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still wanted to give you some links to read up on after the show, and a lot of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. This first one's probably not too much of a surprise, but man, it just just irks me just to read it. Uh, a cybersecurity firm may have hacked its own client, you know, to extort them. This yeah, is uh, so basically, they, you know, uh, so this is just, there's a company that was called uh, LabMD. LabMD, yeah. they were a medical lab on the internet or yep. whatever, yep. and uh, this company uh, was hired to to look at their network or whatever, and they went in and stole a bunch of data and then used that data to say the company had been hacked yeah. so that the company would have to buy, yep. um, what's the company called? The Traversa, Tyver- the Tyversa. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you'd have to buy Tyversa's incident response package right. to, to deal with the fallout. Yeah. When the company refused to be extorted, uh, Tyversa told the FTC that, hey, these guys have been hacked and we're doing something about it and so on. Tyversa told uh, the FTC. They told the yeah. FTC. And now the yeah, FTC so came down on LabMD. Yeah. So because, you know, uh, that's how blackmail works, right? If the people don't pay you, then yeah. you tell the authorities on them or whatever. So you hack them, say they've been hacked, and then go tell the FTC. Yeah. Well, you don't tell the FTC you hacked Well, them. no, of course not. Just that they've been hacked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and the FTC, none the wiser, uh, went after LabMD, and LabMD eventually actually ended up going out of business because yeah. of it. Yeah, it was uh, kind of chilling. This actually happened a little while ago. So this kind of, this kind of activity. Yeah, this is the uh, lawsuit is finally coming to an end after the incidents that happened in 2010. Yeah. That's nuts. Uh, but yeah, so a uh, whistleblower who used to work for the company has come out and said, uh, you know, this isn't the first time they've been doing stuff. Uh, they also uh, made up information, such as in 2009, pointing to Iran for supposedly stealing blueprints for uh, President Obama's uh, mm-hmm. helicopter, Marine One, mm-hmm. which led to big news stories and Fox. I and remember so that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that was all completely made up. Hmm. Funny. Hmm. And uh, the making stuff up was on the orders of the CEO. Uh, and just to get uh, wow factor and so on. And cause seriously damage to international relations. Yes. Like, wow, <laughs> it, how uh, hazardous. So the uh, administrative judge was like, so to boil this down, you would make the data breach appear to be much worse than it actually was just so. And he's like, yes, that's what we would do. Uh, and, you know, Tyversa denies the uh, allegations of the whistleblower, but, you know, he seems to have quite a bit of proof. Yeah, it's a, it's a former employee of the company, so... Hey, Alan, uh, I want to talk about this story. I've seen it being floating around in several different headlines. Different iterations are like enterprise SSDs die after a couple of days or lose data after a couple of days and things like that. And mm-hmm. so we got an article over at ZDNet says solid state drives lose data if left without power for just a few days. Uh, so I think it starts after about a week. Depends. Um, and yes, apparently enterprise SSDs apparently are actually worse for this than consumer grade SSDs, which last about a month while powered off. Uh, but this definitely raises questions about uh, your strategy for long-term storage. You know, oftentimes you take a disk out and set it on a shelf for a while, and and then expect to be able to go back and get would, the files off. of would it. Would that not be the same for flash drives type storage? 
Well, in a flash drive, you only have one set of flash, and you're just using it, right? In SSDs, there's a lot of silliness going on and right, so on. Right, right. All SSDs, say. Alan? I don't know if it's all SSDs. You have to dig into the... This is uh, some research that ZDNet is covering. And yeah, it's a recent a real present- PDF in there somewhere. A re- yeah, a, a recent presentation by hard drive maker Seagate's Al- Alvin Cox warned that the period of time is retained on solid state drives is halved for every nine degrees Fahrenheit or five Celsius rise in temperature where it's stored. That means if a solid state drive is stored in a warm room, say seventy seven degrees, its data can last for about two years. But if that goes up a mere few degrees, say like eighty six, like it does here in the summer, that data's retention period gets cut in half. Uh, yeah, and then I was talking to some uh, somebody that used to work at Fusion IO, and uh, with their flash stuff, they would actually purposely like bake it at a high temperature for like a day to simulate it having sat around for a long time. This seems like a really big deal. <laughs> well, how often do your SSDs powered off for a long period of well, time? Well, I actually I have one right here because it's like a, I use it for ISOs only, but mm-hmm. it's still it's like 120 gigabyte SSD, and I have a 256 gigabyte SSD that I was planning to use for a build that's been sitting on my desk for like three months. Right. So it I don't think it means that the SSD breaks. No, I know, but it's, it's just, just that of, it will forget some of the bits that are on. I there. was planning to tool through that drive before I format it again. Yeah. Well, you should have done that before you put it on the shelf, apparently. So, in other words... Now, again, uh, consumer drives apparently last uh, longer than uh, enterprise drives because... I don't know. So, leave all of the SSDs on all the time. Probably. But, but then just don't write uh, to them too much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, it seems like, you know, something like ZFS that would correct some of those errors be good, but then, you, you know, you still have to have something to correct them from. So, either you're cutting your space in half or mirroring them or whatever. All right, Alan, you got my attention. What's this about Red Hat breaking its patch cycle to uh, get uh, some GTK3 updates in? Well, yeah, so normally uh, with Red Hat Enterprise Linux and, and therefore CentOS, uh, when they release, like, say, Red Hat 7, the main versions of, of all the packages are kind of frozen. And yeah. They'll just backport security fixes but not uh, pull in newer versions, right? So on Red Hat 6, near the end of its life, uh, even though it's still going now, uh, that caused some problems. You know, it's like, oh, the version of PHP is so old, it's not supported by some applications. Yep. But at the same time, the reason why it was done that way is so that if I deployed an application, yep. just installing my security updates isn't one day going to randomly upgrade to a newer version of PHP that's going to be incompatible with my application and cause right. me massive headaches, yep. which has happened on other operating systems. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so Red Hat has this thing where the part of the thing you're paying for with Red Hat and the support package is the fact that they're paying people to go and backport just the security fixes to let you stay on that older, stable version of the software, but still be secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently, uh, for GTK and GNOME 3, they're going to uh, rebase to a newer version in the middle of the release cycle for uh, 7.2. Did they say why? Uh, not exactly, but GTK is kind of a big dependency. So Yeah, well, probably. and... and uh... GNOME 3.14 hmm. is, I think they're going from 3.10 to 3.14. Do you know? It's, or it's uh, or 3.8. Something like they're, going like from, they're going from like 3.8 to 3.14 or something. Um, and the reason why that's a really good thing is, I believe, the GNOME runtime environment that it's going to be coming out over the next year uh, is based on GNOME 3.14. So that means it'll be able, n- applications based on the GNOME runtime environment will be able to run on Red Hat Enterprise 7. So it's kind of a good thing they are going to 3.14 because then that'll sort of be yeah. all the major GNOME desktops across the board will will work that way. So that's something. Yeah. It is kind uh, of out of, out although, of character. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, that's why I uh, thought I'd mention it because, you know, if this goes well, they might start doing more of that. And then, you know, it raises the question, why am I paying all this money if I can just 
deal with updates without the backporting. Hey, uh, Alan, um, tell me a little bit about hash. It just wouldn't be a TechSnap without a hash discussion. Yeah, so uh, because PHP doesn't have strict types, uh, certain strings evaluate differently than you would expect, right? So <laughs> uh, in PHP, zero is equal to a zero in quotes, right? So the number zero is equal to the string zero and a bunch of things like that. Okay. Uh, and that's caused people confusion every once in a while. And the uh, one there is that, um, so in PHP, there's the triple equal sign operator, right? So there's equal equal is how you check if, if two things are the same. Uh, and then three equals checks that they're the same and that they're the same type to prevent some of these confusions. Because, uh, for example, zero and false are the same thing. So, you know, false equal equal zero, but false doesn't equal 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 zero, right? Because they're not the same thing. Uh, but it turns out if you're just doing like MD5 or, or SHA-256 hashes of things, if the hash happens to start with zero E, PHP might mistake that for being a number in scientific notation, right? Where it's zero, uh, zero E, some other number, and that's uh, basically a, a fraction, right? Because it's some number to the power of 10 times, or some number times 10 to the power of this other number, right? Mm. You know, scientific notation. Uh, and so if you have a hash, if you're using just an MD5 hash and you're comparing it, uh, your some hash could actually just equal equal zero or equal, equal some other hash where only the first two characters end up matching, right? The zero e part, because you know zero raised to some exponent is always zero. And so two different hashes, as long as they start with zero e, could end up being equal. And so someone could actually uh, exploit this to do basically a hash collision and find some password that hashes out to zero e something. And that would let them log in to as long as the other person's password also hash out the same thing and a bunch of stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, if we find any applications actually vulnerable to this because of it. Uh, although I think at least one person found it while looking at it. Um, one of the interesting things is if you use a real hash, like a cryptographic hash, this will never happen because they start with dollar sign one for MD5 or dollar sign 2B for bcrypt or dollar sign six for. <laughs> Um, uh, SHA-256 crypt or SHA-512 crypt and so on and so the, it would naturally happen if you were using proper cryptographic hashes but if you're just using MD5 or SHA-1 or SHA-256 or SHA-512 hashes like you're not supposed to this could actually cause your application to be vulnerable and even more so than it already is because you're not salting your hashes properly mm-hmm. and now don't say Alan didn't tell you because Alan just told you now, um, our next roundup story comes from a longtime asset to the TechSnap program, uh, warcouncil.org. <laughs> what? what, Alan? What, is a, what do we have this story in here for? What is this? Uh, so this is just uh, a professor who uh, taught at uh, West Point in okay. the U.S. Okay. Uh, is finished his teaching tour and is going to Korea or something now. Uh, and at the end of each semester, he would write a letter to his students since this was his uh, last semester and he really wanted to get it out there, he decided to actually publish the letter he wrote to his students uh, for everybody to read. Uh, he taught the class on uh, military strategy, and it kind of just talks about you know defense and, and the way of thinking about some of this stuff. And I don't know. I thought it uh, might be interesting for some people to okay. read. I will, actually, I, will add it to my, I will add it to my Insta paper feed. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Now, Brian Krebs discusses... What's that? Here's the big one. Yeah. Now, this one, this one uh, 
of course, it's not actually from Krebs, Krebs' site, but it's about Brian Krebs, so it still counts. Brian well, this Krebs, is uh, another site doing an interview of right. Brian Krebs. And it's, uh, where do we start? Uh, is there yeah. parts in the interview that uh, stand out to you? Um, I don't know. There's quite a bit. So uh, while uh, Krebs, uh, so um, Dark Security, which is the blog of Norse, uh, mm-hmm. one of the security companies, right? and they have an interview here, and they're also talking about the fact that if you're going to be at the Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference, Brian Krebs is uh, doing the opening keynote for that. Hmm. Uh, but they asked him some questions like, you know, uh, how did you originally get into journalism? And he talks about, you know, having a paper route when he was nine and then working in the mail room and, you know, the whole kind of stereotypical way of becoming a reporter. Uh, no kidding. Mostly by accident and then working for their web property. And then eventually they, you know, sold off the website part and merged it back with the uh, dead tree version. And his job didn't exist anymore. And he decided to break out on his own. And now he does all this interesting stuff. Um, and then, you know, he talks about, uh, you know, some of the advantages of being an uh, independent investigative journalist and, and mm. why that makes a difference than just being a regular journalist yeah. and so on. Yeah. Uh, That's interesting. You know, at what point did you become interested in information security? And it was like, well, my computer got hacked and I wanted to find out what happened. <laughs> that would make me interested too. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you, you become pretty well known for getting your hands dirty, uh, you know, finding your way into hacker communities, listening to their conversations. Uh, you know, could you tell us a bit about the, the learning curve and, and how much work it took to be able to, to blend in there and, and learn all the things you need to learn? And he talks about, uh, you know, you're known for breaking stories about breaches. Uh, many of the high-profile breaches were reported by you first. How do you know about it first? And mostly that's, you know, he has sources that, you know, the credit card companies and the banks and stuff like that, right? That's his job as a journalist is to have those types of sources, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, you've become pretty ubiquitous in the security executive circles. Uh, uh, how do you feel about knowing that CISOs talk about getting a call from Krebs and so on? And he says, I, I suppose it's kind of a backhanded compliment in that I'm the guy nobody wants to talk to. But in reality, there's uh, far more likely to get a call from law enforcement, which seems to be doing it a lot more of these notifications uh, hmm. anymore. He says, unfortunately, very often when I make the call, the victim company has already been notified by law enforcement. Almost invariably, this means that the victim organization's data and that of their customers not only went missing, but it is actively being sold, traded, or shared on the underground market. Because that's usually how Krebs finds out about it is either, mm-hmm. you know, it's being used. And so one of his sources at a bank finds out about it and tells him, or he finds it himself on the underground markets and is like, oh, uh, hey, company, um, I, I could have just bought your customer data, you might want to look into that. He says, uh, you have certainly changed the way security is reported and discussed. Uh, what are your plans moving forward? Uh, I think that's a good one because, uh, you know, having, showing that, hey, reporters that actually know what they're talking about can do a good job mm-hmm, at this mm-hmm. uh, is definitely a good thing. I, You know, I wish there were more reporters like Krebs that actually understood this stuff to talk about it. There are too many tech reporters that barely understand any of it. And then he, uh, there's a whole interview with a bunch more questions, but it's definitely yeah. uh, a good read. I recommend it. That's cool. It. Good find, Alan. Good find, sort of well done. And that link will be found in the roundup. Okay, get ready for this. Brace yourselves because we're about to give you the top cyber attack vectors for critical SAP systems. Yeah, so SAP is installed on like a quarter million 
uh, different companies. Mm-hmm. Like ninety eight percent of the top one hundred most uh, valued brands use it, mm-hmm. and it turns out most of them aren't secured properly at all. Womp womp. But even you know, uh, SAP's been around since the time when you know networks weren't really directly connected to the internet the same they are yes. now, and lots of legacy yeah. stuff and concepts there. Yep. Hey, you know, we've talked about this uh, from time to time. Here's one from IT World, a new Linux rootkit that leverages GPUs for stealth. Yeah, so we talked about the concept before, uh-huh. or even the concept of using, I think it was the network card, and it for because yeah, uh, yeah. it has access to the direct memory access channel to be able to do key logging and could send it directly over the internet and, uh, and so or over the network. Uh, but this is actually a proof of concept. So instead of just somebody having the idea that you could do this, they actually have one that works. Uh so it's a rootkit uh, for Linux that uses the processor and memory of the GPU yeah. so it doesn't uh, you know, eat up processor time or memory. And it's not something you're going to be able to find by looking at the machine. They're taking advantage of the OpenCL API developed by the Kronos Group. And so it works on AMD or NVIDIA graphics cards. Uh, and you can actually take advantage of Intel graphics cards through the AMD SDK, but you have to have the SDK on the machine. Right. Uh, so I'm sure they'll be able to, to package this up at some point. That's and, adorable. Uh, mm-hmm. You just have to have OpenCL support on your Linux rig. Of course, not too not too many servers probably have OpenCL or OpenGL drivers, but a lot of workstations it can do. depend. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, sure. If, Especially uh, like as Amazon more and more ones. servers that are starting to do video stuff, and you know, or just any servers that are starting to offload some of you know some of their work to the GPU because the GPUs are better at certain types of work, right? So the Internet of Things was quite a topic this week, and uh, there was a panel that said, beware of the ticking time bomb that is Internet of Things. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, uh, they had IBM. people. There's IBM, Logman.com, mm-hmm. lots of places. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, we've been talking about this for a while. We have. Uh, the Internet of Things, if we're going to have more and more of these little devices that don't get updates or, you know, little device, sells cheap, made by a company that then goes out of business, well, who's going to make software updates for it now? I don't know if we're ever going to have that solved. Ubuntu thinks they can solve it with Ubuntu Snappy, but uh, all right. Now this uh, now this is an ad network compromise with a new twist. Has it their twist? Users were victimized. Uh, how were they by uh, an exploit kit instead of just like right? Know, so they they hacked into the ad network and made it send out uh, the exploit kit. Normally, yeah. the way these happen is just somebody uploads that as an ad, but in this case, they actually took over the network and replaced legitimate ads with the virus. Yeah. So they took over the ad network. Now, apparently, it seems like it was actually a very small ad network. Uh, like they were talking about only like 15,000 people a day actually seeing the ads. Okay. Huh. But, uh, yeah, basically, legitimate website you go to has this advertising network for their ads. And uh, then all of a sudden, that yeah. website has the nuclear exploit kit embedded in it instead of not. Now, this one, I'm a little sad to see it. Doesn't surprise me. Australia outlaws warrant canaries. Yes. Uh, you know. I'm surprised that won't happen. I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if that doesn't happen here in the U.S. too. Uh, in fact, that's what actually what Schneier says here at the bottom of his. Here's the uh, warning. This is uh, Section 18.2a of the law now says that a person commits offense if he or she discloses or uses information about the existence or non-existence of such a journalist information warrant, and then uh, the penalty upon conviction is two years imprisonment. Hmm. And yeah, uh, Schneider's like you expect to see this stuffed into the next U.S. law that goes through. Yeah. Oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Uh, Dropbox terms of service have changed. I'm sure there's nothing to worry about, right? Uh, basically, they say if you're outside of North America, they're not going to store your data in Ireland uh, to keep it away from the U.S. government. Hmm. Well, there you go. That does actually seem like a pretty good idea. 
All right. Uh, well, it does nothing if you live in the States because your data is still there. No, and if you come to the States and access your data from Ireland, they'll probably get it all. Uh, yeah. So we have a tweet, Alan. I love it. We got a tweet in the roundup. What's this one about? Uh, it's about what it says. Some people is going <laughs> to hate me. Uh, the antivirus industry, if it wants to go forward and write a real security software, not cute GUI applications with a label and big capital letters saying safe, must follow the path that popular client-side applications like web browsers or document readers followed years ago. At the very least, privilege separation and sandboxing are required. Yeah, it's getting to the point where uh, the most vulnerable application on your system is your virus scanner. Because hmm. the virus scanner looks for viruses, but it was never yeah, clear that, oh, I could inject some thing to cause a buffer overflow in the virus scanner. And, and then, you know, the virus scanners are one of the things that usually run with the highest level of privilege, right? They're running as a service or something, not even a user. So they have more privileges than the administrator. So they can stop the administrator from doing stuff and so on. Uh, and so they're becoming more and more of a target. Now, Alan, are you a bit of a gearhead for the Asus Transformer? Do you want the new Asus Transformer? Uh, I'm not so much after the Asus Transformer itself as the CPU it uses. Oh, tell me about uh, this. If you look at page 5 or whatever, whichever page has the lame benchmarks on it. Okay. Uh, so this is the Intel's new Core M5Y71. I don't know why they suddenly decided to stick letters in them. Uh but they show that uh, it can actually keep up even with a Core i5 processor in like a laptop, um, low power or whatever, but it huh. uses only like 4.5 watts. Huh. Uh, so the power envelope of an Atom with the performance of a Core i5. Way to go. Yeah. Huh. And it has the HD5300. So that is, a C- that is a CPU to look for. And that was in a review of the Asus Transformer Book T300. Uh, which looks like kind of a nice rig. All right. Oh, so uh, Avid, this is the uh, this is the listener I was re- referring to during the feedback yes. segment. Uh, I knew I recognized the name Addy for somewhere. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, he said I wanted right in to say that when you mentioned uh, Adelum, I think is how you say it in episode two thirteen around the twenty two minute mark, you did so with disrespecting tone and didn't actually say we provide any security value. It just so happens that I work for them, and so I know we do actually give value to our customers. Uh, and we've talked about them on the show before. Uh, we yes, protect- he's wrote in and provided useful information a number of times. And yes, I didn't uh, so much mean to make it sound like that. Sorry. Um, uh, we protect SaaS applications like O365 and uh, uh, G apps for companies uh, who still don't have control over what the users are doing. And I think kind of Avid sort of takes probably particular. I don't think we were single out any particular product. It's more so of how these companies use it. Right. Well, I think it was. I was confused by Adam's web page, not anything else. I think it was. Yeah. Like I looked at their web page, and it wasn't obvious what they were selling, or how they actually protect the SaaS applications. So I'm guessing it goes between your company's network and Office 365 or Google Apps, and stops your users from doing things they're not supposed to. Right. Yes. Okay, Alan. Uh, tell us. This is, uh, we do this by connecting to different service APIs and uh, serving as a proxy between end users in the company to the SaaS in question and so that the users can't do stuff they're not supposed to. Mm. And so they can uh, enforce the governance policies of the uh, company. Now, is this this blog post over on Tau Security? Uh, what year is this? I have a feeling this is a story that's going to get me kind of upset. Do you have the gist of this one? Uh. Basically, it's uh, Richard uh, Belcher, who's a researcher. Yeah. Uh, got, he says he's uh, recently been reading, reading a manuscript discussing uh, computer crime and security and so on. Yeah. And uh, he pulled out a couple of excerpts and retyped them here for you. And he's got a little poll at the bottom, and he wants people to guess what year 
was were these uh, excerpts from the manuscript written uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, or uh, in the 2010s. I see. And it's like the accelerating uh, indecence of computer-related crimes, particularly in the light of continued rapid growth of the computer industry and the present ubiquity of electronic data processing systems, raises the question of what countermeasures can be taken with industry and government to prevent such crimes, or at least to detect them with precision when they occur. And that kind of goes on. I'm going to say 1960. Um, I'll say 80s. Okay. All right. All right. Here we go. I'm uh, oh, oh. The answer is the 1970s. The answer is 1970s. Yeah. Uh, and it comes from a book called Computer Capers. <laughs> it was published uh, January first, nineteen seventy-eight. There you go. But yeah, Split if you go read events. that stuff, it, you know it apply. It sounds exactly like it's yeah uh, from today. Yeah, and it's actually from the seventies. I went sixties because I thought he was going to go for shock value. All right, uh, how about this? United Airlines announces a bug bounty program. Everybody's getting in on it. This is actually a good thing, though. They say they take your safety seriously. I think yeah, although the eligibility requirements are a little weird. Yeah, uh, the all, all bugs must be new discoveries. The researchers must be in the mileage plus member and in good standing. What? Oh, so you 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 don't get paid; you get mileage yeah, yeah, plus yeah, yeah. points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, it, so that makes more sense now that you have to be a mileage plus member. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, because that's how you get paid. The uh, researchers submitted a bug. will actually give me cash. I like this one. You can't be the author of the vulnerable code when you're submitting the bug. <laughs> ah, well, that makes sense. You can't be an, an employee of a United Airlines. I don't know if I agree with that. Or any Star, Star Alliance member. It seems like that might well, actually. Well, in that case, if you find a vulnerability, you should just fix it. Go to IT. Free. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Although incentivize people. Incentivize. I, you can't do Bruce, afford, Bruce, uh, Bruce Force attacks, vulnerability scans, automated attacks, disruption of denial of service, code injections on, on live systems. They don't count that stuff either. Code uh, injection seems like it should also be Also, you can do uh, bugs that affect old or unsupported browsers or operating systems, bugs on internal sites that United employees are agents that are not customer-facing, uh, or bugs in partner or third-party websites, or bugs in onboard Wi-Fi or the entertainment system or avionics. <laughs> well? Uh, insecure cookie settings for non-sensitive cookies. I, I guess that would make sense. I was planning to find bugs in their uh, Linux-based entertainment systems, so there goes my plan. Dang. I was gonna become. I was gonna get mileage well, rich. That's not their software, right? That's yeah, that's standard true. industry standard. Software. I wanted them miles, Alan. I wanted them sweet miles. But if you get uh, remote code execution, you get a million award miles. If you do yeah. authentication bypass, uh, brute force attack, uh, potential for personal identifiable information disclosure, or a timing attack, that's a quarter million uh, mile points. And cross-site scripting, cross-site request forgery, or third-party issues that affect United are fifty thousand miles. You know what? I'm being glib. But to be honest, I'd take free miles. I'd take a million miles. That's actually kind of nice. I could go on, I'd go on a trip somewhere. I don't, I, I don't know the value of their miles. I don't know either. I'm sure it's probably not one-to-one anymore. Like if they're like my aeroplan miles, then 50,000 is enough for a flight to Europe. Hmm. Hmm. All right, Mr. Jude, anything else we need to cover in the show today? Uh, nope, that's it for today. Well, then we should probably mention next show. So join us live. Won't you? We do the show live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 2000 UTC. 
Well, that's good. Just leave it right there. Why not? Yeah. You can also join us at jblive.info. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get all of that converted to your local time zone. Okay. Last few pro tips before we get out of here. Techsnap.reddit.com. Go there to make this show even better. We use those links for the roundup, the feedbacks, the community engagements, even just voting. All of that helps. RSS feeds to get this show every single week. We post them right below the download links in the show notes. We've got audio and video. And we always appreciate a comment in iTunes in the MP3 feed. And then last but not least, if you really want to be... If you want to be like absolute total pro level, well, then you show up at Alan's house and you get a little. No, no. <laughs> I was wondering if you were listening. <laughs> no, that's it. Just email us. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop down. And then uh, we'll read your email on a future episode of the TechSnap program. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. 